Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Over the past six weeks, we've been talking about... um and this has been following our Easter weekend where we've been talking what happened after the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus birthed this whole new movement. And it wasn't about places, it wasn't about buildings, it wasn't about politics, it was about people. And so we kind of looked at, we've been looking at what happened historically in the first century since the resurrection of Jesus. But then we kind of changed gears and now talking about, well, what difference does it make now? And, and, and what impact did the resurrection of Jesus not just have on, on the world, but on my world, on your life? And so we've been wrestling in that over the past few weeks. And I want to bring that into a land this morning. And so ultimately, the, the big thing we've been arguing, could, yeah, well, arguing, if that's a word, I've got this image of me arguing at you and you arguing back. Please, if you want to, go for it. Last week, we obviously looked at the idea of the kind of historical precedence of the, a worldview where, that doesn't include the existence of a God, or at least a God who cares, or a worldview that includes the, the existence of a God who cares for the human story. And, and we've looked at some extreme ends of different historical figures and where certain worldviews, where they lead. And we kept coming to the conclusion that the hallmark of our belief of Christianity has always been radical generosity and bond-breaking compassion. And so whether, whether or not this isn't real, let me just put it out there. Like, if you're a skeptic here and you're like, I don't even, I cannot, I cannot yet buy into the evidence of God. Whether or not there's such a thing as God or not, those who believe there is and those who believe that Jesus was the image of that God and that Jesus was the perfect example of that God, it has led them in following His example to radical generosity and bond-breaking compassion. And so history has kind of set this precedent. Now again, this is not to excuse a whole lot of people in the name of God have certainly committed atrocities through the year. But the issue with those is it doesn't represent what Jesus showed. And so if Christian is what Christian does, then certain things that have been done in the name of Christ certainly weren't Christian. And so, but we see following the example of Jesus and what he taught, it always seems to take it to the extreme where people would find themselves being radically generous and would be so compassionate. It wouldn't just stop at pity or empathy, but it would move them towards action that would see bonds that are keeping other people trapped completely set free and loose. So this is what we've kind of been arguing and, and looking for uh, through this past week. And so past, past month, I should say, past series. So last week we looked at um, an interesting thing that Jesus taught on that's pretty challenging. And he kind of, in a, in a really poetic kind of way, but really kind of hones in on this idea and principle. And he refers to this idea really during a distinction between the existence of eternity or the existence of heaven and the existence of a God compared to if there was no existence of forever and this is all there was and if life right now as you know it if that's all there is and he refers to this, he talks about it in terms of uh, earth and heaven and and this is where it's recorded and this is in the gospel of Matthew Jesus said do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and I want you to remember that word consume we're going to come back to it and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal but where the treasure is there your heart will be also and so Jesus kind of drew these two ideas about where you place your treasures and you know you can kind of look at this through many lenses but he was overtly referring to your treasure your tangible material treasure things that are important to you possessions money things assets and he says make and he gives a warning he says listen be careful not to store up all your treasures just this life 
because this life isn't all there is. Now, if this life is all there is, it leads to somewhere, and that's that word consumes. Because if, if, if this is life kind of where it ends, then everything you have eventually will be consumed. It'll either be burned, it'll either be eaten, it'll either be worn out, it'll either be spent. The nature of this life, and if this is all there is, is consumption. We consume everything we have. But Jesus warned against that, saying that life is so much more than just what you consume, that there is more to this life. He says there is this idea of forever, of eternity, and you've got to live like there is. But if you live like this life is all there is, then you end up doing this. We consume everything we've got, spend everything we've got, and we hoard everything that comes into our hands. And if this life is it, and again, we argued this kind of last week, and we looked at, and again, we looked at extreme examples, so you, you might be able to give a, a, a kind of debate back against this, and that's it's totally fine, but there seems to be example after example that the, the logical end conclusion, is that if this life was all there is, if there was no such thing as treasures in heaven, that there was a, a bigger life, a bigger reason for the human existence, and this was it, and that the, the, there was no purpose behind pain, and there was no story behind suffering, and there's no hope, and there's no justification, and there's no light to shine on human story, then Jesus warned that all that happens is consumption. We would just consume everything we ever get because ultimately it's, it's me first. It's fight for me. It's fight for what I got. It's spend everything I got because there's no guarantee of a tomorrow. And so Jesus gives a warning out about this and warns people about living like this. And so if you live, and the, the radical difference where you might, here's the thing, saying if you might believe that there's more to this life, you might believe there's heaven, a hell. You might believe there's consequences for our actions in our life. You might believe this. But Jesus gave a warning that you might believe something, but how you steward what you have in your hands, how you steward your treasures, how you steward what you have and the things in your life will show whether or not you're living by what you believe. And you might believe there is more to this life, but how you steward what you got will show are you living like there is more to this life. And this ultimately is a tension we've been wrestling with in this series is, is, does this belief in Jesus, does it alter how we live at all? Like really, more than just attending a church service and more than, than singing songs, should it alter how we live? And should it alter our lives? And it, Jesus gave this warning, he said, because where, where your treasure is, but to catch this, he says, your heart will be there also. It might be easy to, to, to think the opposite, where my heart is, my treasure will follow. Jesus goes, no, 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 that's not how it works. <laughs> your heart is fickle and there is so much competing for your heart. There's so many temporary things competing for your heart. Some of you right now might find yourself drowning in, in debt and drowning in stress and drowning in anxiety because you've let the tension of the present and the needs of the moment overwhelm your planning for the future. And so you've found yourself consuming more than you actually have and now find yourself struggling in life as you are right now. And Jesus calls us and He warns us against a life that, where our hearts aren't led astray, where things don't have priority in our heart, where stuff doesn't have ownership of our heart. And so he warns us, says, where your treasure is, where you intentionally place what is most valuable to you, and where you put your stuff and your things and your money. He said, it's a way of keeping your heart safe because our hearts are fickle and Jesus cares about what is going on inside of our hearts. And so someone who lives, who lives like there is no God and someone who lives like this is all there is, this is kind of a picture of how we steward our finances and steward our resources. Go to the next slide. We go like this, we, we live right now, we live, we consume, we, we spend, we hoard, we do everything we want for our life and about me, and this is kind of how we live. This is living as if there is no God. This is what, it, you might believe there is, but this is how you live what you believe. So if you think this is all there is, we spend everything we got, and then if by some chance, by some fluke, there's any left over, 
We'll save some, you know, for a rainy day. And then every now and again, something might happen or someone might happen and it twists your arm enough or, or, or kind of, you know, stirs your heart enough or maybe even guilt you. You go, I've got to now give over what I usually spend, over what I save, I've actually got to give something. But to, to live your life practically in such a way where Jesus teaches about <laughs> storing for yourself treasures in heaven. And again, this is just kind of one thing. Jesus, one third of everything Jesus taught, he gave warnings about how you and I deal with the wealth that we have to steward with the life we've got given. He, this is how much serious Jesus recognized this is linked with our hearts. You're kind of living as if there is a God and this life isn't all there is. We kind of switch this around where we give first, where we recognize with what God has given me in my life to steward, my resources, my finance, my time, my abilities, my wisdom, all the margin in my world, I prioritize first and foremost proportion, percentage of it, and I give it. And then I intentionally, to be wise with my life, I save. And then with the vast majority of what I have, I budget my life off the rest and I live off that. And this obviously seems like a really radical way for living. Maybe you've already built your life kind of on this. Why is this important? If you're anything like me, <laughs> you probably don't want your life to be mastered by money. I don't want to spend my life serving money. I'm sure you don't want to spend your life serving money. I think the intention of it is that money would serve us, that money would serve the vision that we have for our lives, that money would serve the vision that God has given for our life. And when you live life kind of this way, and again, this is ground we've covered over the past few weeks and, and uh, kind of what we've worked over. You live your life this way, we've found that this is the true key, wait for it, to financial independence. Not independence probably the way you're thinking, it's bigger and it's deeper and it's better than that. It's independence from the idea that life equals stuff. And a life that equates living with stuff and possessions and consuming, arguably it's not the life that any of us are truly looking for, or indeed the life that God intends us to live. But living like this is independence from the idea that life equals stuff. It's independence from the idea that there is no God. It's independence from a lifestyle that relegates God to emergency. Maybe that's what you found yourself in church here today. You're in an emergency. When we've run out of all other options, when we've run out of the cavalry hasn't arrived and we realize I've got nothing left, you might find yourself going, well, God, if you're real and if you're there, and I know I haven't talked to you for a while since I was, I was looking for that car park that other day, and that's, that's about it. And so we'll come to God in emergency. And, and again, that's not, a, that's not a criticism. That's life. But if, if we would turn to God in emergencies, why relegate him to just that? Why not invite him into your world before there's an emergency? And this is what Jesus teaches about good, wise financial stewardship of our resources and what we have. Our vision as a church is to see Jesus in everything. And I don't want to relegate Jesus to simply the emergencies of my life. And also, I recognize that money is always going to be competing for my heart all the days of my life. And money's probably going to be competing for your heart all the days of your life too. And here's the thing. I don't want money to win. And I don't want it to win in your life. I don't want it to win in my family's life. I don't want it to steal my joy. I don't want it to steal my potential. I don't want to give excuses the rest of my life of why I didn't live the life I felt passionate about because money was the reason why. I don't want stuff to have my heart and I don't want it to win over my potential, over my marriage. My urge is that you wouldn't want that either because you know as well as I do that our, life's, our life value is not in how much we have rather in how much we give. And that's why I think for, for many of you, you value your relationship with your Heavenly Father so much because, and we just sung an amazing song about it before, this idea that God just gives and He gives and He gives again. And the challenge we now have as Jesus followers, if you're a follower of Jesus here, this is our challenge. If you're not a follower of Jesus here, you can just, um, just be interested in this and go, wow, that's an interesting way of living life. But for those of you that are following Jesus, this is our challenge now that we kind of have this 
commission, this command to now love the world in the same way that you and I have been loved by God. And so our value in life isn't simply seen in how much we have and accumulating all that. And indeed, this is not a, a slight or, or a hit at having staff and earning great wealth. Not at all. But it's, it's looking at the deeper things of life, the more real things about our life. And what difference does this faith in Jesus make now in our world in recognizing that our true value is found in what we give? So here's what I want to ask you today as I bring this series kind of to its conclusion, is when, when the chapters of your life are being written, and when your life is drawing to a close, and you've spent everything there is to spend, and you've done everything there is to do, and now you look back over your life and what it counted for, and what it accomplished, and what was it about. What do you want the chapters of your life to say? What do you want it to say? What do you want the story of your life to illustrate? Here's the thing. We don't get to write the story. This is so interesting. We don't get to write the story of our lives at the end of our lives. We merely give an account for it at the end of our lives. We write the story of our lives right now and how you steward what you've got in your life right now. Because all you've got and all I've got is now. Now is all we've got. This is the only time we're guaranteed on this planet is today, this moment right now. And, and I think it's just pertinent to bring this series to a conclusion by asking the big question. When, when your life is spent and you get to the end of your tenure on this planet, what do you want your life to have said about what you valued most? And you don't write that at the end. You simply give an account for it at the end. You start writing it now. Now is all we've got. And over the past six weeks, we've been exploring um, a whole lot of incredible events that took place that were recorded in the book of Acts. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, Acts is in the New Testament and it was written by uh, Luke, who was an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus. He was a doctor. He gave eyewitness accounts of all the things that took place in the life of Jesus. And that book is called Luke, funnily enough, the gospel according to Luke. And he also wrote kind of part two, what happened after the resurrection of Jesus. And, and so Acts kind of explains uh, like the, the whole narrative of kind of how the church got off the ground. And so first 28 chapters, or the only 28 chapters, chapters 1 to 28, kind of centers around two significant figures at the start of the church. We've looked at a lot of their stories over the past six weeks, if you've been with us. One was Peter, so kind of like the first third, maybe up to around chapter 10 or 11, the 12. Peter seemed to be the central character, and obviously many of you would be familiar with Peter. He kind of was with there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Wasn't there at his death, but was there at his resurrection, right? So, um, so kind of the first parts of Acts shapes around his life. And then this guy named Saul comes along, and Saul was a, uh, kind of like a religious Nazi. He was just full-on uh, anti, anti-Christian. He was anti-Jesus. He went around uh, arresting and murdering Christians until he himself encountered a resurrected Jesus. And it changed his world. And so kind of the, the last two-thirds of Acts, so up until chapters 28, follow his story and kind of how he preached the message and how the churches grew and how it spread all around the place. And what's amazing about this, Acts abruptly ends in chapter 28 with Paul arriving in Rome and where he ultimately lived out his life and died and he was eventually crucified under the Emperor Nero there. And many of you are familiar with Nero from ancient history. He wasn't the nicest character. And so it kind of finishes there with Paul still writing and ministering to Christians and helping people and, and preaching this new message of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ. And so it abruptly ends in chapter 28. And although Luke's, this is what I love, although Luke's account ends at chapter 28, the story doesn't end there. And whilst Luke's account finishes with Paul in Rome, arrested under house arrest for his faith and for what he believed, the story of Jesus' followers doesn't end there. It continues. And today I want to look at the idea of what it means to kind of live an Acts 29 kind of life, about your life. Because we often look at how the early church was birthed and how it grew and how it started and what happened in it. And it finishes after 28 chapters. But now you get the chance with your life to pen the next chapter. Acts 29. 
And so today what I want to do, I just want to look through two of these figures that were there and who saw this and who were present and what they wrote at the end of their life and what they drew conclusions were some of the most important ways that we live out this incredible faith that you have discovered in Jesus. And here's the thing, if you aren't a believer in Jesus and you're a skeptic about this and maybe you've, you've kind of grown up with a whole lot of conflicting ideas about faith and about God, about religion, about church, and maybe it's not just ideas you've heard, maybe it's people you've met that are giving you conflicting ideas. Here's what we're going to do. We want to go back to the source of those who were there and those who witnessed Jesus, those who, who before they knew He was who He said He was, they had to wrestle with all He taught. But after He was resurrected from the dead, they had to pretty much go with every single thing He said. How do you debate a guy who's been resurrected from the dead, right? And these guys gave their life for it. I mean, they had nothing to gain from it. They only had everything to lose from it. And so what I'm going to look today is two of these guys' lives. And obviously one of them has been Paul, where Acts finishes the story of Paul. Paul in that prison cell wrote a whole lot of different letters to churches and individuals. And it's kind of his way of getting his message out before his life ended. And he wanted to kind of pen down what he saw as some of the most important things about living out a life that was following Jesus in daily life. And so this is from one of his letters to a young man he mentored named Timothy. And this is, he wrote two letters to Timothy. This is the first one. This is right at the end of this letter. Keep in mind, this is at the end of his life. He knew his death was coming. He knew he was going to give his life for this. So he's kind of busy writing down everything he believed and what he wanted people to understand. Now, Timothy was a pastor. He was a young guy. He pastored a church in Ephesus, which was like a massive church. They estimate up to 35,000 people were part of this church in Ephesus. It was humongous. And he was this young guy trying to pastor it and lead it. And Paul's like, let me write you and tell you what's important. And so he gives him a few commands. And so here's where we pick it up in 1 Timothy. He writes to him, command those who are rich in this present world. And keep in mind, he's saying this is to Christians, right? So he's commanding Timothy what to command Christians to do. So again, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to buy into this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what the first followers of Jesus were wrestling with. It says, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, I'm trying to think of that present world, but I want to think for a moment our present world. I don't have to go over the, the details, right, of how we understand that we are wealthy in this present world, right? Does everyone nod at me and agree? According to world standards, does everyone understand you are very wealthy? As in like the top 1% on the planet? Okay, okay, go Google it if you don't trust me on that. So just trust me on it. Okay, so command those who are rich in this present world, aka Aussies, <laughs> not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is, and he's saying something we all know, right? He's saying, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything, I love this, everything for our enjoyment. Goes on, command them, this is so important, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And here's this term again that Jesus used. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This, now, this is huge here, okay? This is like Paul's giving this young guy saying, listen, out of everything you can teach, teach some stuff, encourage some stuff, but every now and again, I want you to command. Like say, guys, this is an order from the, from the boss, right? So, and again, I just wanna lay this down, right? This, if you're not a Christian here, probably going, yeah, I knew this is all these commands and rules. No, no, no. Like, you're cool. You're all right. But if you are a follower of Jesus here, Paul's there going, Timothy, I want you to tell everyone sitting in your congregation, this is a command from the boss, okay? Command them. Okay, Paul, command them to do good. Command them to be rich in good deeds. Command them to be generous and willing to share. Notice at the last sentence, in this way, they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And we said earlier that the value of our life is not found in what we get, but rather in what we give. This principle and this truth seems to come out time and time, time again with those who knew Jesus the most. But the life we're truly looking for isn't the more accumulation of stuff and things, but the life 
that is truly life is not simply found in how to get rich, but the words that Paul used here is to be rich. And man, there is a huge difference between what it means to get rich and what it means to be rich. Before you jump in here saying, okay, John is talking about getting, getting. I'm not. I'm talking about what you are being, who you are. Be rich. To be rich doesn't have really anything to do with the amount or the figures in your bank account. It has everything to do with how you steward and what you do with what you've got. Because again, now is all that you and I have. And it's amazing that Paul used this term. He said, you're going to, God has given us so many things richly for us to enjoy for our enjoyment. As if to suggest that the true enjoyment, this true joy we're looking for in life, the true joy is not simply found on the end of what we buy, but it's found on the end of when we give. And this is really one of the big challenges in being a Jesus follower, because following Jesus doesn't begin with us changing what we do. Following Jesus first and foremost begins with changing we are. Again, you, you get that, right? You already understand. It deals with us kind of from the inside out. But, but you've got to ask the question, well, if it's about changing who we are, well, who are we changing into? The idea of following Jesus is that we would be changed into someone that was more like Jesus. And indeed, the challenge and the exhaustion and the encouragement that came from Paul and indeed the other apostles to the followers of Jesus with this idea is that to be like him, to be like Jesus meant that you and I as well would be generous. Be generous. And so I want to ask you today in your life, if, they, if right from the beginning, they saw this as one of the most powerful and honest and real ways of being a follower of Jesus and what this meant to live out faith and what this meant to truly trust in God and to be like Him. If they kept wrestling with this idea of generosity, I want to ask you today for those who follow Jesus. If you were to write what your life looks like right now, what story is it saying? Is it looking like this? Is it generous? And I feel a great challenge about this. I'm telling you as a, as a, as a guy who has to get up here every week and share and teach, the hardest the hardest thing to teach on, the, mo the biggest struggle to teach on is whenever it comes to finance. Because I know when I'm talking about finance, I'm talking about some of the most cold faith areas of your life. For some of you, I know you are working tirelessly and you're earning. And, and for some of you, it's not easy for you right now and it's a grind. For some of you, you are drowning and just talking about money is like, just gives you a panic attack. And some of you are losing sleep over it. For others of you, maybe you've got so much, you don't know what to do with it and, it, and it, but you're still freaking out that you don't have enough. Like, I understand when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about something that's very real to everyone. We're not simply dealing in ideals and philosophy. We're dealing with something very, very practical. And for a moment, I don't want to downplay this or think this is just a spiel or cliche statements. Like from the very beginning, those who encountered Jesus and took his message seriously, the thing that marked their faith was their ridiculous and radical generosity. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't a, and if you consider it, Paul went so far to say, you've got to command them because this is the way we live out our faith in Jesus. And I don't want to be shy and fearful from being strong and overt about this, saying how important it is that we wrestle with this. Because where, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, say with me, there your what? Your heart will be. And this is why this is a wrestle, because it's dealing with this stuff. It's not just your budget. It's dealing with your heart. And God is more interested in what's going on inside of you than what you're doing. So I want to encourage you about your life. Are you being generous? And what do we mean by generous? That's a very fluid term. You go, of course I'm generous. Generous is very different. Generosity is very different to random acts of giving. And can I just say as a side note, you are like world class at random acts of giving. In fact, I don't know if I've ever encountered a community of people that are better at random acts of giving. Every time a need comes up, every time something happens in a family's life or, or a f someone's world, the giving and generosity, people pull together, people make meals, people give financially, people babysit, people look after, people, you know, mow one another's lawns. You guys are the best at random acts of giving. It's unbelievable. So that's not to undercut that whatsoever. But generosity is slightly different. 
But be- generosity isn't reactive, it's preemptive. Generosity means it's premeditated, it's calculated, and it's designated. So it's not random acts of giving. Generosity with your giving, it's premeditated, meaning you don't wait to be emotionally stirred for something. It is convictional for you. It is a command for you. You premeditate your giving, and it's calculated. So you're not just, what do I do, what do I do, what do I not do? You're like, no, this is a proportion, this is the percentage of what I have that I've premeditated on, I've calculated how much of my wealth, and then it's designated. You're intentional about where and why you give it. It's a radical different exchange. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy, command those who are in your church to be rich and to be generous. Now, eventually, Paul dies. And we don't have, um, we don't have the account of that in any of our New Testament documents, but history writes a whole lot about it, particularly Josephus, who's one of the most significant ancient historians that kind of wrote a whole lot about what happened in the first AD. So Paul dies under... Uh, under Emperor Nero, and so does Peter. The Apostle Peter died as well. In fact, Peter, when he was arrested by the uh, Roman authorities, and they were, they were going to crucify him, he requested, this is amazing, he requested, look, I don't want to be, cru- I don't deserve to die the same way that my Savior did, so crucify me upside down. So Peter was crucified on a cross upside down. So around the year circa AD 95, we look at, we have possibly one of the last documents written that are recorded in our New Testament here from a guy who was there, the beginning, saw all Jesus taught, was there for his death. He witnessed it. He was at the feet of Jesus. Jesus looked at this young man and said, can you take care of my mother? He was there. He was there with Peter when they ran in and saw the empty tomb after the women had seen tomb empty and they ran to see it. And he also recorded in his account that he outran Peter. So it's kind of like a little, I'm faster than Peter at running. Anyways, I just think that's funny because why include that? So all the other apostles die. All of them killed for their faith. And one of them that we can see from history lived to old age, John. And around the year 1895, he had seen so much. You have to understand how significant what he saw was. He saw so much. He would have understood of Peter's crucifixion. He would have understood that Paul, the great leader who was planting churches all over the Roman Empire, was killed for his faith. He would have seen all of his other friends who were there that walked with Jesus for several years, all them all killed for their faith. Some of the significant events he saw transpire in his time, or at least he would have known of, big one would have been around 8040, sorry, 8070, was the destruction of the temple. And to just give you like a 30-second picture of how significant the destruction of the Jewish temple was, all of ancient Israel's life operated and functioned around the temple. The temple housed the law, the Torah, what Jewish life was built off, the, the, the temple housed the presence of God. The temple was the center of not only Jewish spiritual life, but civil life and family life and political life. It was so significant. In fact, people were willing to die before letting anything bad happen to the temple. This was like, this was so significant. In fact, about AD 40, there's a story. One Roman emperor came to erect a statue of Caesar in the temple. And history records that when they arrived on Jewish soil, that 10,000 Jewish men stood in front of the Roman legions and bore their neck to them as if to say, we will die before we let you put a statue in the temple. And like, this is how serious it was to, to the ancient Hebrew people. And so fast forward, eventually Rome decided to send their forces, attack the city of Jerusalem. And the city, Jesus predicted, this is amazing, Jesus actually predicted this event would happen. And the, um, there were thousands and thousands of people who had come to Jerusalem for their major festival Passover. And then once all the pilgrims had gathered, the city was overwhelmed with people. Rome shut up the gates and then said, we are now going to sack the city. And for the next several months, they laid siege to Jerusalem. And the siege lasted so long, and eventually they wanted to starve people out. It got, they were the, by the time they finally breached the walls of the city in Israel, in Jerusalem, um, that the Roman soldiers were so tired of waiting, were so frustrated with this battle, 
that they went, they just went blood crazy and they slaughtered every single person they could find, young, old, man, woman, all of them. And those that they didn't kill, they didn't kill out of mercy, they killed to sell them into slavery. Like it was a, it was a bloodbath. And they then did something crazy. They decided to knock down all of the temple, completely shattered the whole thing. All, and you can still see a lot of the stones that are still laying there today in Jerusalem from what happened there. Like, and this essentially was the beginning of the end of ancient Judaism because how could you have a temple system, temple Judaism without any temple? And so John would have seen that. John would have been aware of that. Like so much of his culture and the people he loved and the people who were part of, he saw so much destruction, so much death. And so at the end of his life, you've got to wonder, what is John going to say here? What's he going to conclude about all of this? And what John shares here, he gives a view on God. This is remarkable. That has stayed in the consciousness of humanity ever since. After everything he saw, he gives a picture and an understanding of what God is like. Change the game forever. Here's where we read it. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God, knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because. And I, I pause it there for a moment because what he says next, better or for worse, was a game changer. Because out of everything he saw, the injustice, the pain, persecution, the hardship, difficulties, the blood, murder, the harshness of life, he draws a conclusion about how do we respond to it. He says, whoever does not love does not know God because. We go to the next slide. God is love. Now, we're sitting here 2,000 years later going, duh, like we know that. We've been hearing that forever. Like you don't even have to be a Christian. Like most people, when they talk about a higher power, they go, yeah, yeah it's something to do with love. Kind of, we, we get this idea, but you have to understand how profound this was because in the pagan world, when the J John lived in before he was heavily a Christian, particularly in the Roman Empire, there were many, many, many gods and none of them wanted anything to do with love. Lust maybe, but not love. Gods didn't receive love. God didn't give love to humans who were more concerned. They seemed to be a, a jealous and envious and manipulative bunch of gods. So to the pagan world, an idea that God is love was ludicrous. To Jews, this was a radical idea because God for them was holy. God for them was powerful, but to suggest he was love was a radical idea. No doubt, this idea that God is love, this is a uniquely Christian idea. So when the world talks about God is love, and this is all about love, and we kind of take it for granted these days, and it's kind of just assumed. This was radical when John first suggested it. And we looked at this belief, and he looked at this faith, even, even, even with all the pressures that were in life, and even with all the blood that John saw was spilt, there seemed to be no certainty or no evidence in John's world that this was the case, but yet John insisted on it. Maybe for you too, maybe you have a difficult time believing that God is a God of love in light of all the suffering we hear of or maybe the suffering you personally experience. John did not confuse the cruelty of life with the fact that God is love. Life is harsh, God is love. John didn't stop there. According to John, he said love requires a response. And this is ultimately what this whole series has been about. How do we respond? What are we to do with this remarkable God who loves us, how he loves us? He said it demands a response, but not a vertical response, something remarkably different. And this is what he says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has, <laughs> I hate this because they get so practical. If anyone has material possession and see the brother or sister in need, have no pity on them. How can the love of God be in that person? Like, talk about ramming at home, right? Because we say it, right? God is love and being a Christian is all about love. And he just lays it out. This is at the end of his life, right? After everything he saw, he, man, he could have said so many things about the injustice of the world. But yet this is how he brings it to a conclusion. So if anyone has stuff, money, material, possessions, treasure, wealth, and you see the world you're living in, and you see a brother or sister in need, and you see the needs that exist in your world, but yet it does not move you. How can you say you have the love of God in you? Whoa, 
Dear children, here's where he concludes. Let us not love in words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Remarkable stuff. Essentially, this was his argument. Our dedication to the one whom we can't see is authenticated by how we treat those we can see. So that's why we've spent several weeks talking about how we at the church have a mission to love people. And this isn't a love that is simply emotions and feeling that we sing about. Like, like John said, how do we use our stuff and leverage our finance and leverage our resource to love people in the world? Because for us, this is how we authenticate our devotion, our commitment, and our gratitude to the one whom we can't see. We treat those we can see in the same way that our Heavenly Father has treated us. So next Sunday, it's our Vision Sunday. And we do this once a year where we kind of lay out our future and what we're believing for and where we're believing to go. And we ask, to, we put out an opportunity for people to give over and above their regular giving. And maybe you're someone who has not yet partnered with our mission here at Suncoast Church. This may be your opportunity to do it for the first time and to partner with us. And we want you to pray about it. We want you to consider it. We want you to do it. <laughs> uh, and this, because, you know, we give week, week in, week out, and that helps with the maintenance of, the, you know, our facility that helps with the operations of church life. But what Vision Sunday is, it's going over and above simply maintenance of a facility and the facilitations of church life. This is positioning us for more significant impact and influence in our generation and to make a difference now with the world that we've got. So Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you care about our lives now. You know what we're wrestling with and what we're juggling with and we're trying to balance a life with the commitments and our time and our stuff and our things. Lord, again, would you ruin us with just how much you love us and how much you're for us and help our lives to be ruined for humanity in the same way your heart was broken for us. Pray for those here this morning that really just don't feel loved and that idea has been so foreign or just so fake. I pray today, Heavenly Father, this love would be real, would be present, it would be now for every person in this room. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.